Hello and welcome to the Richard Hunter interview. As ever, this is a place where I'll be discussing matters of interest with a whole range of investment experts. In this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Stephen Tredgett of Oakley Capital Investments, the listed private equity investment trust. Stephen joined Oakley in 2017 and has more than 18 years of investment banking experience. His focus is fundraising, communications and investor relations for Oakley and its portfolio companies. Prior to joining Oakley, Stephen was a founding partner of investment bank Liberum Capital. Over nine years, he raised equity capital for hundreds of companies and advised on public market listings. He began his career in 1997 at Colin Stewart, where he held equity research and sales roles. Stephen holds a BSc in Banking and Finance from Loughborough University. So firstly, a very warm welcome to you, Stephen, and thank you for sparing us some of your time. Well, hi, Richard, and thanks for having me on. So first of all, the um, Oakley Capital Investments, could you possibly just talk us through, to begin with, the objectives and the strategy of the trust? Yeah, absolutely. At a very high level, the objective of the trust is to see capital growth, and that's essentially what it's achieved over the last five years, its compound annual growth rate has been about 17% over that period. How it achieves it strategically is to invest exclusively in the funds managed by Oakley Capital. So to kind of repeat, the listed vehicle is Oakley Capital Investments or OCI, and Oakley Capital manages the funds it commits to. And then just to give you a, a kind of a, a, a so what about Oakley Capital and why would you want to get exposure to the performance of the funds it manages, well, it essentially takes controlling stakes in medium-sized, high-growth private companies in Europe. And if it differentiates itself in two ways, it's one, it's the way it originates. And essentially, Oakley has created a growing network of business founders, entrepreneurs, if you like, many of whom we've backed repeatedly, some three or four times. And how have we built those relationships? I guess it's by, well, one, we were founded by an entrepreneur. And I think that kind of guides, much has changed over, you know, since our founding. But that particular principle of being empathetic and understanding and working closely and forging strong partnerships with the entrepreneurs we back still rings true to this day and attracts a lot of individuals to work alongside us. Not that they necessarily want to sell a company in its entirety, but they want to bring on a partner to help them move that business forward. And so the benefits of this are, one, we're often the first private equity that's ever invested in these companies in 90% of cases, 75% of cases, we are in a non-competitive situation. The benefit of that and some of the, the complexity we navigate is that we are able to invest in really exciting sectors at really interesting valuation multiples. So our average value entry valuation multiple since inception is just over nine times EV EBITDA. And that compares to the companies we invest in who on average at the moment, there's 22 of the companies that you get exposure to in OCI, are growing at an average 35%. The other bit I haven't touched on there is value creation. So, I mean, one of the wonders of private equity is you do get to take, you have some control over your outcomes. You, we have a majority stake. We're on the board. We work very closely with the management we're backing. Frankly, you know, these are incredibly talented, successful management. They're probably the number one reason why we enjoy the success we enjoy, but we can still work alongside them to help them in some of the areas that maybe they have less experience on. You know, we're, we're trying to improve the quality of the earnings, often bring a digital angle to them. 
a direct-to-consumer angle, maybe improve the pricing and yield optimization, doing a lot of buy and build. And the outcome is twofold. That growth that I've mentioned, the 35% EBITDA growth, but also by improving the quality of businesses, we also see an increase in the multiple that we're able to sell them. The average increase in multiple is about 50% from when we buy them to when we sell them. Okay, and presumably this trust also provides an opportunity for retail investors to invest in companies which may never go public. Is it also still the case that many companies are remaining private for longer? Yeah, so it's a really interesting and kind of much debated point. But in our experience, and my experience actually with an investment banking before joining Oakley was exactly that. One of my frustrations of being an investment banker is that it was proving harder and harder to convince companies to join the stock market for the reasons that one, there was increasing capital available via private equity. We talk about it a lot these days, but it was a relatively nascent industry 10 years ago in terms of the, the wide availability of capital from private equity through, you know, particularly for small, medium-sized companies. So there wasn't the choice. There is now. Secondly, there's a great simplicity and value add of a private equity owner. You've got one investor typically, and they can provide a lot of support and engagement to help you kind of, you know, grow and develop the business. And then there's everything that comes with the public market. You know, it's the, it's the cost, it's the re- reporting, it's the regulation. It's the information advantage you frankly have to give away. There's M&A restrictions, the pressure of live pricing, the kind of list goes on. And as a consequence, we're seeing more companies stay private, if not for longer, but just in their entirety of their you know, kind of operating lives and a shrinking number of public companies. And that is having a profound implication for investors, for private investors particularly, as they think about how they get access to performance of companies which may never come to the stock market. So... What are the sort of geographical and, and sort of sector weightings uh, of the trust at the moment? So as I mentioned, there's 22 companies within the portfolio that you essentially get exposure to with OCI. They're pan-European. And when I say that, we have a t- particular leaning towards Germany, UK, Spain, and Italy. They sit in three sectors, technology, and by technology, that is increasingly kind of software as a service or infrastructure as a service. Consumer, which is very much digital consumer, so online marketplaces, and education with a particular leaning to to edtech. And I guess if there's a couple of themes that go across all those companies, 70% of those companies deploy their products or services digitally. And a similar number, slightly higher, three quarters of them enjoy some kind of recurring or subscription nature to their revenue. So providing a great visibility to their performance going forward. So I suspect you may have answered part of my next question, which is what you're looking for in specific companies, be that value, dividend, you obviously growth and quality. Yeah, I mean, obviously the highest level, we're looking for the things I've already talked about, you know, kind of really successful, proven, quality, backable management teams and kind of profitable, sustainable, high growth. In a slightly more kind of granular way, there are other themes. I mean, typically we're looking to invest in areas where there are some clear tailwinds, but there's structural market growth. So to give you an example, let's say, for example, car insurance here in the UK, well, 70 to 80% of all car insurance now is arranged and transacted online by a price comparison website or the website of a particular insurer. In Italy, for example, and particularly going to COVID, it was 12 to 14% of car insurance was arranged online in that way. And so 
it is a it's it's a pretty fair thesis to think that you know increasing internet adoption within Italy and completing increasing adoption of digital solutions for consumers and businesses is something that is going to continue in Italy and is clearly behind more mature you know countries like UK or to to some extent Germany. So we like repeat regional plays and we like investing behind kind of the digital disruption curve that I've just kind of described there. And when we do invest in that way, we like to back the kind of dominant player in that space. There's great barriers that come with that. There's a declining cost of customer acquisition. It's quite hard to displace the number one player. Or we have a clear strategy of where we can create through roll-up the number one player in a particular space. There's obviously a digital angle. If there isn't a digital angle, then we, the investments we make basically assume that we can introduce one and that maybe we can, you know, kind of bring a great consumer product and give them a D2C channel so they can grow in that way where they previously haven't. And then, as I mentioned before, there is either present a subscription nature to the revenues or we think we can introduce one. So to put a bit of colour onto that, could you possibly just talk us through a couple of your top holdings or positions? Yeah, if I, if I may, I'll take one from each of the three sectors that I've at very high level. If you, if you want to go into any more detail, Rich, please do. But in education, I'm going to pick out IU Group. And IU Group is the largest and fastest growing university in Germany. The reason it's growing as fast as it is is that it predominantly provides most of its degrees online. And so they've created a platform that delivers multi-topic degrees to people in work anywhere in the world. And this, this was the great discovery for us. It's, it's not just a German solution. It's now now becoming a kind of global solution. So they've got 340 degree programs. They have students in nearly 110 countries now. And when we acquired the business in 2018, it had roughly about 15,000 students. Today, it has over 75,000 students. And the exciting thing is, is that their average age is, is kind of about 29. So we're targeting like 25 to 35 year olds, often from non-academic households, maybe didn't do a degree in the first place, or if they did, it, it wasn't you know, a degree that is now relevant to them. And they are looking to study around their job, their family, their cost constraints, and they're looking to study degrees that are now relevant to their particular place in life and their and their planned direction. And that is creating an incredible and also a university which is which is so rare that is actually focused on their customer experience. It's built around them. The education is deployed and given to them when they want it at the time that suits them. And customer satisfaction is absolutely crucial to, you know, to the growth and the progress of the university. We now believe that it can be the largest university in Europe, if not the entrepreneurs we're back, believe potentially, potentially the world. So that's IU Group, which has you know, enormous potential for not just itself, but for OCI. It alone, IU Group's growth alone could help underpin the NAV growth that we've enjoyed for the last kind of five years. Um, in consumer digital, there's Idealista. Now, Idealista is the number one property portal in Southern Europe. It is essentially the right move of Southern Europe to bring it into kind of UK context. And if I gave you the opportunity to buy into right move five, 10 years ago, I think you'd take me up on that in terms of, you know, kind of the, the price you could have got on it. And that's essentially what we've been able to do in buying a stake in Idealista. Idealista addresses a similar market size to the UK, but it's a quarter of the value. And again, 
the adoption of a solution like this is is rapidly growing, but it still lags someone like the UK. You know, in the UK, 90% of all agents, you know, use a right move. In Spain, for example, it's 60, 65%. In the UK, they spend, you know, a thousand, a thousand pounds per agent on average. In Spain, it's 300 pounds. So you can see the kind of the, the tailwinds that, you know, that, that we're investing behind there. And there's a great opportunity. And then finally in technology, I'll draw out Tech Insights. Now, if you wanted to know how an iPhone 13 works, for example, <laughs> if that was your thing, Richard, and you wanted to kind of go into unfathomable detail about that, then this is the company. And essentially, who wants to know that information? It's about that device, essentially, or any semiconductor device. Then it is basically, it's chip designers, chip producers, um, integrated design manufacturers, the likes of kind of Apple and Google. The desire for this information is, is kind of ever growing. When we acquire the company, these companies tend to, to just kind of get this information on discrete project-based basis, essentially looking to see if any of their IP have been infringed in any of these devices. Today, over the course of, you know, kind of value creation and, and the work we've done alongside the existing management team, we've reorientated the business towards a subscription model. So now, 60, 70% of the revenue is subscribed for from a much wider base and not just for the idea of defensive IP protection. It can be to prove what your IP could do in another model. It could be to help your R&D, but essentially we now have 200 subscribers and it's all the great and good of Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Apple. It is doing something across a range of devices that no one globally is doing. And we've created an incredible valuable um, business um, in the process. Well, that's extremely interesting because obviously we've had a quite extraordinary 18 months or so and possibly a sector, very broad brush sector, which has escaped uh, some of the scars of the pandemic has been technology. So how have you found that your trust has been performing over that quite extraordinary time? I guess you're kind of... Your question has kind of flagged it, really. I mean, with the with the focus of the portfolio companies being on digital delivery, it has thankfully and luckily insulated them from much of the kind of negative impact of of COVID. And so, whilst there were seven companies that did experience some impact, that could be because they had a physical distribution um, channel or because they couldn't get access to their client sites, whatever it is, a delayed kind of sales cycle. But despite that, kind of EBITDA grew at 20% during the kind of COVID year. And then we've, we've obviously subsequently kind of bounced back to the 35% levels that I, um, that I referenced earlier. Finally, Stephen, I think you've explained your strategy very clearly, which presumably means that your positioning will remain much the same. But what's your kind of outlook from here? Obviously, we've, we've had a, a record year in terms of some of the US indices, for example, some concerns around inflation and even overvaluation. Is that something that is going to pass you by or is it part of what you need to factor in for your outlook? I think to say that we would have, we're likely to have little or no impact from interest rate rises, inflation, supply chain disruptions, all the things that you've raised there. And I, and I don't want to be dismissive about them. We are fortunate, though, in that if you are, you know, investing behind digital solutions, capital light solutions, you know, low cost solutions. So, for example, if your cost of your gym is going to go up because, you know, wages is going to increase inflation and so that you can't afford it. Well, you know, we're investing behind fitness apps, which allow you to exercise in your home a lower cost solution whose price is unlikely to kind of rise and whose margins are kind of maintainable. That is repeatable across most of the you know, portfolio companies. So it's a combination of 
the types of businesses that we're investing in are arguably a solution in an inflationary environment for consumers, one. Secondly, the kind of trends we're investing behind, we're pretty confident are going to survive in you know, a kind of economic cycles. They are mega trends like increasing internet penetration and adoption of, of online solutions, rising global middle classes wanting accessible, high quality education. And I guess another trend might be, you know, we've got some consumer health, healthcare investments. And look, they're benefiting from the tailwinds of aging populations and, and increasing health awareness. None of those three trends are going anywhere, regardless of what's going to happen in within the economy over the coming years. And as I say, I think we've, we're well positioned ahead of, you know, potential, you know, kind of inflationary pressures as well. It's been a fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. So many thanks again for your time, Stephen, and for those valuable insights. That's uh, Stephen Tredgett of Oakley Capital Investments. And thank you for listening. Please feel free to like and subscribe. And of course, you can find much more, by the way, of investment insights and ideas at ii.co.uk. I'll be back next Tuesday with another Richard Hunter interview. Bye for now.